Thank you. Um, my name is Margaret and I'm an alcoholic. And um, oh, I don't give a lot of thought to what I'm going to say at a meeting, particularly a meeting like this. Um, my experience tells me that what I need to share will be shared. And hopefully it will be of help to me first, as I'm the most important person at this meeting outside of me. There's you. And um, my primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And I take the second half as seriously as I take the first half. And um, my first drink that I'm told I had, I was six weeks old. I had whooping cough and my mother used to say that the only thing I would hold in my stomach at the time was brandy and the white of an egg. So that was my first drink. And in my family, I was raised, um, my father and mother worked a pub and a little grocery. And um, their attitude to alcohol was very free, really. Neither of them were what you call drinkers. And uh, but they had no problem about giving alcohol to us as children. As a very young child, I remember my mother used to give us a, a tonic wine, small little measure of tonic wine. And uh, then sometimes we would get something like a sherry glass of Guinness for the blood. So there was no worry about us drinking at that stage. And um, at school, I joined the Pioneer Total Abstinence Association at the age of 14, and uh, where I swore I would never drink, ever. And I was okay with that. And um, my first memory of wanting to die was when I was four years old. Now, I didn't know what death was at that time, but I had measles and um, I was in bed for three weeks longer than I should have been. And I do remember that time. I remember lying very listlessly in the bed and I had a longing for something just to cover me up and never have to get out of bed again. And uh, so that was my first memory of wanting to die. And it's only in recent times that I was able to associate that time with actual sexual abuse. And I didn't connect them until the last few months. And um, the good news and the bad news about my drinking story is that I am 79 years old. I'll be 80 years old next March and I'm still a beginner. And my recovery is always beginning. Each day is a new beginning. And that has never changed for me. And I still feel like a newcomer. And um, I got through school and university without taking a drink. And uh, I, I got my first job, my first job at the age of 22 as a school teacher. And um, I fell in love. And uh, within a year, I had a broken heart. And I became suicidal at that time, went to the doctor. He introduced me to Librium at the time. And um, I wanted to die. 
And then my friends took me out one night and uh, they gave me my first drink. I was 23 years old and my first drink was a baby sham. And in the uh, story in the big book, the doctor, the doctor's story where he talks about acceptance is the key to all my problems today. What I found alcohol was the key to all my problems that night. Absolute magic. Broken heart was gone. The don't care switch came on. And when I was puking my guts up at five o'clock in the morning, I was saying, oh God, I'll never eat rhubarb tart again when I'm drinking. So I immediately became a drinker and um, alcohol was not the cause of me getting sick. It was the rhubarb tart. Now I didn't become a daily drinker or anything immediately. But um, I had found, I had found magic. And my drinking was very social in a sense, in a sense, for maybe a couple of years after that, uh, insofar as I enjoyed a drink and I would go out and maybe just have two drinks. But then the time came when I needed three drinks and I didn't notice this increase. And this was how it was for me. Anyway, I left that town, went to another town and got involved with another man there. And um, he asked me to marry him. And um, I said, yes. And I went back to tell a former boyfriend that I was about to get engaged. And he assaulted me, raped me. And um, after that, that's when my drinking escalated. And um, I didn't tell anybody about it at the time and um, went ahead with the engagement, a nightmare for both of us. And uh, that engagement finished after a few months, but I was well into alcoholism by the time that finished. So my drinking story really was a very short story. My drinking was less than eight years altogether, less than nine years. Took my first drink at um, 23, I got sober at 31. But in that time, I ended up in the most horrific places, had the most awful experiences. It's now I see that, uh, you know, the era I was brought up in at that time, for instance, when I got my first job, I couldn't rent a television that time because I was a woman without a husband's signature or my father's signature. That's how it was back then. So for a woman drunk, a woman drunk, as far as I'm concerned, ceases to be human. She becomes an opportunity for predators. And that's how it was for me. And um, so, as I said, my drinking really was less than nine years altogether. But in, during that time, I uh, ended up in a psychiatric hospital, uh, a serious suicide attempt. And I remember the psychiatrist coming to talk to me and um, asking me why I did it. My father, of course, was busy telling him it was the broken engagement. It wasn't because I was already in love with another man at this stage. But... Um, I didn't know why I did it. I just knew that I didn't want to live. 
And I remember him saying to me, the psychiatrist saying to me, um, you know, this is a criminal offence, you know. Suicide was a criminal offence if you survived it. And um, so I said, send for the guards, you know, arrest me, do what you like. So instead of that, I was sent into a psychiatric hospital whereby they gave me ECT, uh, electroconvulsive treatment. And uh, if they were giving it to me to this day, I'd take it because all I had to do was put my arm out and they gave me an injection and I had an anesthetic and I had more magic. They also introduced me to all sorts of psychiatric drugs at that time. And what I discovered about those things was they're great for a day and then the fix is gone. And um, so that wasn't working for me either. But in my last year of drinking, I did start looking for help. I remember going to my uh, GP and saying to him, I, I, I'm drinking too much. And oh, Margaret, it's your depression. It's this, it's that. Here's another prescription. And later on that year, I went to a festival down in uh, the down in Listowel, which is in County Kerry. And again, I suffered a bad assault there, a really horrendous assault there. And the following night, I ended up at about two o'clock in the morning, sitting on a sidewalk with a man I had never, I had met him earlier in the night and I had been buying him a drink. And a car pulled up and it was raining and this young man got out and he asked me who I was and who the man was and where I was staying. And I told him I was staying in a tent and he bundled me into the car and there were two other men in the car. And he brought me to the camping site, asked me where the tent was. I said it was beside a tree about 2,000 tents and probably five or 600 trees in the place. But this man found the tent. Not alone did he find the tent, but he got me into the tent. And he slept the night in the tent without putting a finger on me. And I often think that that was an AA member. A handsome young man in his mid-twenties with a woman who wasn't capable and who was drunk. And he was, well, he appeared to be sober. But that man saw me as a human being. He saw me as a woman in trouble and he rescued me. And that had a big impression. That made a big impression on me. Now, I didn't stop drinking immediately, but... I went back to my doctor and I said, I, I think I'm an alcoholic. Now, I didn't really know what I was saying. And uh, he said, no, Margaret, he says, you're not drinking enough to be an alcoholic. I mean, I was going into work every day. So here's another prescription. So I stopped drinking for a few weeks. And um, then I found it was very difficult. I was taking his 
prescription and I was going out with the friends to the same pub and they were drinking and um, it was very, very difficult being around them. Uh, so, of course, I developed a flu. And um, I had a hot whiskey. And uh, the following night, I had a bottle of beer and I gave half the second one away. And um, the third night, I was celebrating the fact that I wasn't an alcoholic. So I was back to square one. But something happened at that time that has been the greatest help to me as far as I'm concerned. Whatever was in the bottle, the fix was gone. There was nothing left in the bottle. And on Christmas Eve 1974, I was in a pub and I had met a friend who told me that a good friend had buried her husband a month before that and I didn't know. And I called her to commiserate and she invited me to come and visit the following week. So in that bar that evening, I was with three siblings that I would normally love to be with. They weren't my siblings. They were um, uh, two brothers and a sister. And um, normally I would love their company, but I might as well have been in a glass bubble. I couldn't connect with anybody and I couldn't connect with them. And I might as well have been drinking water. And I got so drunk that night that I could not lift my head off the ground. But I was cold stone sober in my head and miserable and depressed. And the following week, I was going to visit this friend and uh, she rang me and cried off. And that's when I decided I was going to kill myself. My life was over. That was the only thing I had to look forward to. Now, in the meantime, three months before this, my brother was hospitalized and was now three months sober in AA. And he said to somebody who said to me that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous could save the world. And I remember thinking, well, if that cynical bastard could say anything good about anything, there must be something to it. And um, that registered with me. And he was three months sober. I wasn't aware of it until I heard this. Anyway, my father sent him up to visit me. I was lying in bed um, on the 5th of January, 1975. And he came up and he just said to me, would you consider John a gods? He didn't tell me his drinking story. He didn't tell me anything about a nothing. Would I go to rehab, in other words? And it must have been the easiest 12-step call that was ever made. I said, I would. He said, will you be ready in the morning? I said, I will. And he left. And I drank through the night. Remember, I was in a pub. So when they were gone to bed, I went downstairs and helped myself. My brother called for me in the morning and he gave me some more booze on the way to Dublin. And I fell in the door of John of God's. And um, I haven't had a drink since 6th of January, 1975. 
And it wasn't as easy as just falling in the door and I got a message. I was in the infirmary to be dried out. And of course, they gave me drugs to dry me out. And after a few days, they began to cut down on the medication. And of course, I wasn't having that. And um, when they wouldn't increase the medication, I got my tube of toothpaste and I, with my teeth, sharpened the end of it and started hacking at my wrist. Now, I had no intention of committing suicide that way, but I got extra medication, but it only worked once. And then when nothing else failed, I demanded a taxi to get out of there and get home. And they told me I had to give three days notice. And I might as well go into the alcoholic unit whilst I was waiting. So into the unit I go. And I wasn't five minutes, not five minutes in there when I knew I was in the right place. I experienced the first real belly laugh that I had had in years a belly laugh of relief from identification. And what I heard in that room was, I didn't give a shit what anybody drank or whether they drank Mets or whether they drank every day. What didn't make any difference what their patterns were. What I heard in that room was that they were all full of paranoia, that, um, they couldn't function without a drink, that they suffered from fears and phobias. And um, the big one was the paranoia and uh, skin crawling. And the best news of all to me was they were all pathological liars, just like myself. That was great news altogether. So I was in a room with my own tribe. And, you know, I was just reading recently a bit about Dr. Bob and the big difference it made to him when Bill talked to him was here was a man talking to him about alcoholism out of his own experience. And I'm sure it was the exact same for Bill when Ebby came to talk to him talking about alcoholism out of your own experience. And that's what I had in that room with all of these other, there were 23 others in that room with me. And I knew I was in the right place. And immediately I was interested in everything about alcoholism. And because the good news for me was, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe they have a point that alcohol was making me crazy. And that it also made perfect sense to me that it was a solution. Drink, drinking was my solution to my problems. Absolutely. It cured every ill in my life until it stopped doing it. You know, I had experienced that. I experienced the magic of it and the thrill of it and the freedom of it. And I did it a day at a time. I had a great program when I was drinking. Oh, day at a time, no bother. And, um, but it didn't stay doing that. And the gift for me was that something else appeared. Something else appeared in the shape of my brother 
being three months sober and saying that there was a program that could save the world. Now, I didn't know anything about a program or anything like that. What I found in John God's that time was the power of identification and the power of immediate surrender for me at that time. And the surrender part is something that has to be ongoing. I'm blessed that my drinking story doesn't change. Bores the skull out of me at this stage, but it doesn't change. There's nothing new in my drinking story, but by God, my sober story is a different kettle of fish, a much different kettle of fish. Thank goodness for that, and that it continues to be. When I left John O'Gods, I had already made a decision in John O'Gods. Uh, we were blessed to have a woman called Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy was big into the power of positive thinking. And it registered with me that she talked about somebody, we'll say, going on a diet. And if they're continuously thinking about cream cakes, they'll have one. So I applied that to drinking. And I made a decision there and then that as far as I was concerned, I was never, ever going to take a drink again. And I remember members from all sides would get on to me and they'd say, you mean it's just for today, remember, it's just for today. And I'd say, no. My intention is never to drink. And I haven't changed that intention ever. The only day I have is today. And as Dr. Bob said, if I continue to do what I'm doing today, I'll never drink. I never encourage the thought of drinking under any conditions. I hear people say, and I feel sorry that for me, I feel sorry for me when I hear them say, if I don't go to meetings, I'll get drunk. I don't have any conditions on it at all, none. But what I did have in leaving John O'Gods was a fear that something would make me drink. Because my track record told me that if the going gets rough, you have to have something. You have to, you cannot, you cannot endure things without taking something. So my concession to ensuring that I'd stay sober was I left John O'Gods taking antibus and they did a little test on me in John O'Gods where they gave me little more than a thim thimbleful of alcohol on top of antibus and they told me that my reaction was so bad that if I did drink on antibus if I was lucky I would die. So I left taking antibus and of course I wasn't too long out of hospital when I began to be afraid of the antibus. What if somebody does slip me a Mickey Finn sometime? What will happen? So a few months afterwards I stopped taking the antibus and then I was afraid, uh, oh my god, am I subconsciously planning a drink? And um, I was to learn as time went on that most of 
getting sober and recovery for me was about challenging my fears. And to this day, that's still new for me. I still have a lot of fears to challenge. But in those first months, um, I went to a lot of meetings. Now, there were very few meetings in Galway at the time and very few women. And uh, there were four meetings a week. And there was one meeting where they had absolutely no time for the big book or the 12 by 12 or anything like that. And then there was a, a, a step meeting and there was uh, an open meeting and there was another meeting. So I could only go to them when I was on holidays at home in Galway. So I began to travel around to meetings. But when I was five months sober, I had had enough of Alcoholics Anonymous. Really, I had had enough of it. I was still going into the pubs. And uh, because I remember I went home to a pub, I left hospital and went home to a pub and I told my mother and father the night I came home to go to bed and I'd clean up the bar. And they did. They trusted me. I was cured as far as they were concerned. So I did. I cleaned up the bar. And the difference was I didn't go to the top shelf that night as I would have normally because I was sworn off. And so I had no fear of being around alcohol because it was around me in my home. But um, I was working in a different town. And um, so in that town, I continued to go into the pub and meet up with my old drinking buddies. And then one night in that pub, I was upset about something and I was on the high stool and the barmaid asked me what I wanted to drink and I said I need a brandy but give me a Lucasaid and the beauty of having been going to meetings was I heard myself I heard what I said and that was the end of me going into pubs socially so it was then I decided though that the meetings were boring and, you know, drinking stories, God, I was scunnered to listen to the same stories night after night after night. And uh, as well as that, the talent wasn't great at the meetings, you know, the men weren't all that, you know, didn't measure up very well. So I stopped going to meetings and I stopped going maybe for three weeks. I don't know how long uh, I stopped going. And then something clicked with me, whatever was in the rooms, I needed that, I needed that. So I went back to meetings. And shortly after that, my father got sick and I brought him into hospital that night and brought him into accident and emergency at about half past one. And in those days, he went into A&E at half past one. He was in a bed in a ward at four o'clock in the morning. And I had a lovely few hours with my father. That night he told me he was proud of me. He told me he loved me. Now this was the man who savagely beat me as a child and took my spirit when I was probably eight or nine years old with a leather strap. And I remember screaming at him. He was at me to say I was sorry. And I was, I finally screamed, I'll say it, but I won't mean it. And he walloped, walloped, walloped me 
until I finally screamed, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'm sorry, Daddy. That man took my spirit that night. And here I was all those years later. I made that man suffer for every blow he struck when I was drinking. And the patience he had with me, it was like as if I had two different dads. I had the dad who minded me like a pet kitten when I was drinking, with full understanding and compassion, sat through nights with me when I was screaming. And here I am in the hospital with him, five months sober, and he's telling me how proud he is of me and how much he loves me. And that even during my drinking days, that when he needed somebody to bring him to hospital, that I was always there. I needed that time with my father. And it was the last time alone I was to have with him because inside of two months, he died. The other thing that happened to me in my early sobriety, um, before I left John God's, the doctor took me aside to talk to me about the man in my life at the time. And he said, I've no doubt you love this man and he probably loves you, but if you don't leave him, you'll die. And that was one of the hardest things I had to do was to give up that relationship. And um, I wrote to him from John God's, told him he was an alcoholic and um, finished with him. And I was a few weeks out of hospital when he called me on the phone to ask me for advice on the new woman in his life. Bastard. Mm. And I remember coming off that phone and my friend who was sharing the apartment with me said, you're as white as a sheet. And I told her what happened and how upset I was. But you know, the lovely thing was taking a drink never even occurred to me that time. That was my first experience of the agony of a broken heart and not needing to take anything to fix it. And um, except to talk to other alcoholics, you know, here was my new fix. My new fix was talking to other alcoholics and I didn't know that at the time. And um, later on when my dad was in the hospital, sadly he developed gangrene in the hospital and had to have his leg amputated. And the day he had the operation, I went in to see him in ICU and told him I was going to Spain on my holidays. And I will never really forget the pain on his face that day when he heard me say that at this time for him. And what I couldn't fully explain to him was this ex-lover was coming to town and I had to leave. I knew I had to leave. I couldn't be around when he came. So I went off to Spain with some friends and I had a message a couple of weeks later to come home. My dad was dying. And uh, of course, just being a few months over and the cheap booze, I bought all these bottles of booze in duty free. And when I got to Dublin airport, they were trying to charge me duty for them. And I paid the duty, couldn't leave the booze behind. And I broke one of the bottles at the airport 
and, uh, and here I was carrying these bottles of booze. And I came out of the airport and it was about two o'clock in the morning. And you know, the, I had no option except to either get a taxi home to Galway, a couple of 150 miles away or whatever, or go into a hotel. So something struck me, you need to get home. So I booked a taxi and sat beside the taxi driver and told him my drinking story from start to finish all the way to Galway with my couple of bottles of booze in my bag. And how crazy is all of that? You know, I still to this day, I'm one of those people, I'll do it my way. You don't be telling me I can't go into pubs. You don't tell, tell me I can't be around alcohol. You don't tell me I can't be bringing alcohol home. And um, I was learning my lessons in my own way, I suppose. And it's the same to this day. I haven't improved. Not one iota. But um, anyway, my dad died. And um, when he died, the only feeling I had was anger. I wanted to kick him out of the coffin for leaving me. And then it was as if a shutter came down. I couldn't feel anything else. And 18 months later, I was um, in the back garden at home and I was looking at my mother. Now, my mother thought it was out of me, the sun, moon and stars shone until I knocked the shining out of her eyes at the end of my drinking. And uh, here I am, a couple of years sober, and she hasn't fully forgiven me. And I'm standing in the garden looking at her that day, and I'm thinking, if anything ever happens to you, Mom, I won't want to live. I was so filled with love for my mother. And that night, I watched her die in the ambulance. And again, that shutter came down, and I felt nothing. I remember thinking, well, you could try to give her artificial respiration. And my next thought was, are you sure she's going to die anyway? That's all I felt. And it's only recently I'm beginning to understand what happened to me then. It's what happened to me when I was four years old, when I learned how to dissociate. And for any major happening in my life, I've always been able to dissociate and feel nothing. That's the thing that has saved me from pain. And in fact, you know, they say when you get sober, your feelings come back. That's the good news and the bad news. Well, my feelings have been very slow in coming back. All sorts of feelings have come back. But the surprising thing is with it, is that here I am all those years later, 47 years sober, and the last three years have in fact been some of the toughest years in my sobriety at an emotional level and uh, at a feeling level. And I'm grateful for it. My sobriety has never been threatened, never been threatened. I have, in my experience over the years, I have gone through all sorts of phases. At the beginning, I remember 
devouring the big book on the 12 by 12 and becoming a, a real fundamentalist uh, A member. I remember going to conventions and I'd tap a man on the shoulder and I'd say, where's your wife? I was that kind of a fundamentalist. I went back to practicing uh, Catholicism. I started going to mass, started going to communion. And then that began to pall on me. I wasn't comfortable with it any longer. I remember doing a fifth step with a priest and telling him that I could not feel any sort of a higher power in a church the way I could feel it in a room. And he said, well, go where you find it. And there was something in me because of my Catholic upbringing, I suppose, that needed at that time, needed that kind of permission. I didn't need a lot of permission for most other things, but that, that thing was there, that Catholic thing was there. And so I dropped all that. And um, as I said, different phases and um, I went to a lot of step meetings. I went to a lot of big book meetings. And then I found that what I was, what was happening for me at those was I was really given my opinion. And I was studying the program as something to give a lecture on or a thesis on or whatever. And um, so I stopped doing all of that. And, you know, the whole thing of higher power and a God, um, that for me, the dilemma there was realizing that there wasn't any sort of a God that would heal my sickness. There wasn't any sort of a God that would bring a loving person into my life. There wasn't any sort of a God that would make somebody well who was sick, who would heal cancer. I couldn't accept any of that. And finally, I realized for me that my higher power is, and this is my thinking, it's a higher part of myself, my own higher self. And through that higher self, that higher self knows what's good for me, knows what feels right knows what the right action is doesn't always mean I take these right actions or that I do what's good for me always but there's a knowing inside of me and I I love the power of the fellowship you know it says that in the big book is there a, a substitute there is and it's vastly more than that and it's a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous where else would you find it where else would you find it you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has wrapped itself around me in all my craziness and all my crazy thinking. It has wrapped itself around me like a loving mother or father or whatever and has kept me safe from my wildest thinking and my craziest carry on. And um, I've had all sorts of experience experiences within the fellowship. I've had a lot of uh, health issues. Um, I had a heart attack in 2016. I've had four hip operations, not two, four. My nephew calls me the woman with the six hips. Um, last February, I had major bowel surgery. I had a perforated bowel a couple of years ago and uh, 
they took four inches away from my colon in February. Um, uh, all sorts of health issues. I have high blood pressure. I have so much arthritis. I'm in constant pain from arthritis, but I don't take any pain medication. I have taken pain medication in the hospital under prescription and under doctors, um, not just doctor's orders, but I tell them every place I go, I tell them that I'm addicted to that stuff. And I warn them not to let me go looking for anything. And um, when I was in ICU in February and I was refusing pain medication, one of the doctors got very angry with me and said, you're hindering your recovery. And she said, what are you on about? And she said, what are you afraid of? And I said, addiction. And she said, oh, she understood that. She understood that. So they stopped trying to pile the heavy medication on me. And um, because I don't trust myself around any of that stuff. It's not that I don't trust them. Because doctors think that that's the solution and uh, they think they know best for you. But when it comes to that, I know best for me. And um, I also uh, was sent home from John God's with antidepressants. And I did try taking seven of them together at the time and there was no hit. So I threw them down the toilet and uh, decided I would bring everything under the umbrella of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not sorry I did that because my experience of that kind of medication was it, keep, it kept me stuck, stuck. And I had discovered through experience in this fellowship that the only way out is through the pain and I've had many sober wreck bottoms. I've had many times in AA where I have felt I wish I was dead. I have had times in the last couple of years where I felt a heart attack would be welcome. And um, not wanting to commit suicide, but not wanting to live either. My brother who brought me to AA died three years ago. And um, all hell broke loose for me when he died at a feeling level. I began to feel the grief that I had never felt, never felt. What happened when my parents died and the shutdown? And I had never associated that. So I'm back in therapy. My drinking story has become real, would you believe, for the first time in the last three years. I told my drinking story as if I was giving a report with some of the horrendous stuff that happened to me in my drinking. And that's what the therapist said to me, you're reporting this stuff. How do you feel about it? And I'm saying, ah, but that was back then. I feel nothing. But in spite of me, something has come to life and it's not pleasant. But there's hope in it. There's hope in it. And um, I'm at a different place in my life, completely different place in my life these last couple of years. I'm in a new place. And what has come back to me is 
you know, the feelings of impending doom that I had when I went into John O'Gall's, that has come back. And out of that has also come a feeling that if I'm coming back from Mars, who am I in this new place? But I'm grateful for that because it had to happen because I was in a very stuck place for a long time. And I'm only now beginning to come out in order to connect in a new way with people because my connection has always been you know, less than, less than. Very limited connection with anybody else. Part of myself that couldn't connect because it's too terrifying. And it's beginning to happen for me. And I feel very vulnerable in this place. I feel scared of it. I mean, people who know me would know the performer, the woman who's able to give a good performance, who seems so together and feeling at times so broken and feeling, you know, you know, I'm a newcomer and uh, I'm grateful for that. And I love that about Alcoholics Anonymous. Here I am, almost 80 years of age, and I still feel like a newcomer. And uh, I still feel that my life is only beginning and that more will be revealed. I mean, that's still blowing me away that uh, it's like as if there's another side to Margaret that I never knew existed and it's time to get to know Margaret, but I have to allow that to happen and I have to take the chance and the risk of letting you see who I am. Eugene would remember the book that said, why am I afraid to tell you who I am? We were all very fond of that in the early days, you know, and uh, I'm still only learning how to tell you who I am. And there have been times recently when I've been like a little girl. I feel very young in this place, but I'm equally grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. And uh, with that, it's time to shut up. God, I've spoken longer than I have ever spoken at a meeting before. And uh, thank you for bearing with me. And there's one other piece of um, wisdom that came to me, a couple of pieces of wisdom that came to me in recent times. One of them is when you feel at your weakest and you don't take anything, you're actually at your strongest. And that's the beauty of the pain. If you get through it, you oh, by God, you're a winner and you're at your strongest. And um, the other thing is um, what I said earlier, you know, uh, uh, I was quoting from uh, doctors, psychiatrists or whatever it is, that story, you know, acceptance is the key to all my problems today. I only realized in the last few months, it's not about accepting the, what happens at all. It's about accepting how I feel about what happens. Because I don't like a lot of the shit that happens in my life. But I have to accept how I feel about it. And there's a warmth in that. There's a compassion in that if I let myself feel. I get in my own way when I try to change how I feel. And that's a habit I'm trying to break. Because... I'm looking for a fix 
a fix, whether it's playing a game on the computer or whatever, a fix. So acceptance, acceptance of how I feel and try to let it be there. And with that, I'll shut up. Thank you all for listening.